This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at how the media approached the tricky task of marking a major milestone for Christchurch 10 years since the deadly quake on the 22nd of February 2011. Also, we look at how Facebook has refriended Australia again, sort of, after cutting off its news to spite its government last week. A deal's been done, but who's it good for? We also look at a curious case of an MIQ martyr who raised real red flags for the media this week, and also a sweary standoff in Parliament, which gave our media a bit of a taste and decency dilemma. But first, how fresh COVID cases sparked a Saturday night scramble for the media. Is it pirates that drink rum or sailors? I think pirates. That's Blair Duke. Who's Blair Duke? What does he do? He's a sailor. Oh, um, excuse me. Good evening. We interrupt normal programming to bring you some breaking news. The Prime Minister is about to speak following news of another community case of COVID-19. That was TVNZ's Melissa Stokes with a live news special on Saturday night. Normally a pretty quiet night for news media and for normal people. But that's in normal times, not in the new normal of life under COVID-19. The TVNZ newsroom and others were geared up after a heads-up of a major news announcement at 9pm from the Prime Minister after a cabinet session that began at about a quarter to eight. And they did a great job of announcing the shift of alert levels and what they meant. Now, ironically, the show that TVNZ1 had to crash out of there was Last at 11, a TVNZ mockumentary about a useless local news team chasing stories about the America's Cup. In comedy, timing is everything they say. But obviously, this is no laughing matter. The pointy end of the actual America's Cup was supposed to start within a week. Just before that Prime Minister's announcement, the Blues had beaten the Hurricanes at Wellington's Sky Stadium, and fans watching on Sky Sport, or leaving the actual stadium, would have learned the shock news shortly after the final whistle. Meanwhile in Auckland, fans at the Joseph Parker fight were getting COVID text alerts during the event, and all this made for a very different vibe to previous COVID alert level announcements. And TVNZ's Andrew McFarlane summed it up like this from the newsroom on that live special. If you are watching this press conference, if you are watching this special, act right now as if you're at alert level three. So for a bit of context around the base tomorrow, that will be cancelled likely because of COVID. We've also got the boxing on tonight and we understand organisers are now rushing through those final fights right now to try and get them finished up right before 11.30 so they can get that event completed as well. But also here in the CBD, we've got an event really just a few hundred metres down the road from us, the Auckland Pride event, which is packed at Altea Square and organisers there are easily watching those numbers, those details come in today and they want that wrapped up as soon as possible. But really that's why we are making this change at 6am tomorrow and not at midnight. During that announcement itself, the Prime Minister kicked off by outlining the latest outbreak behind the sudden alert level shift. And she also expressed frustration about those who appeared not to have followed the rules. People who should have been in isolation weren't. That has created multiple high-risk situations. And this wasn't new. On Friday, Jacinda Ardern said she was frustrated about people advised to self-isolate who didn't do it properly. And she was asked about that on NewsHub Nation on Saturday morning by NewsHub's political editor, Tova O'Brien. 
Okay, and you said um, that Friday's confirmed COVID community case should have stayed home, and there yeah. have been a few examples now uh, where cases haven't followed the rules lately. It's clearly frustrating you. Do you think you've lost the buy-in from the public? No, not at all. I think that this... You know, we are dealing with a pandemic um, amongst humans who... Uh, you know, we're full of foibles, you know, and so our team of five million have done an exceptional job, but all the way through we've had situations where someone may have um, not heard or followed the instructions or broken the rules. And Jacinda Ardern was then fielding questions from Tova O'Brien again about whether we came out of lockdown too soon last time in Auckland at that press conference less than 12 hours after News Hub Nation had aired. In the press conference at night, the Prime Minister was also at pains to make this point. I say that not to place blame. Our system has always had multiple layers to it because we know humans make mistakes. We also know, though, that we will not succeed if we turn on one another or if we seek to place shame on people. But on talk radio soon after, the shame came thick and fast. News Talk ZB's main show on Saturday nights is the usually whimsically nostalgic In My Day. But last night, Bruce Russell had a harder edge. They decided they would not uh, play the game with the rest of the team. That, that's what's happened. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit harsher in my judgment than you, but we don't have to vilify them. But what we can do is say, you did not play by the rules. We, we are not happy with you. We are angry with you. And while Bruce Russell had no truck with callers echoing the Prime Minister about shame, some callers made him look mild. After one said that South Auckland should be indefinitely ring-fenced, the next one wanted to go military. Do you think these people... Uh, themselves undergoing a fair bit of pain, realising what the rest of the country is thinking, or would they have no idea and no care? They'd have no idea and no care. And I've heard on your on your programme someone was suggesting um, ankle bracelets. I'd like to go a little bit further and to say I'd like to throw whoever these people are that get caught disobeying the rules into locked down in a army camp. And this one texting in even questioned the timing of the announcement like this. I noticed she waited until the gay parade was over before she made the announcement. If humans have no control over science, it's obvious, meaning hindsight, ignorance becomes formulaic. What then? A word salad with lashings of homophobia on top there. The Pride Festival was actually underway at the time of the announcement and organisers pulled the plug as promptly as possible by about 9.30. Now at that point, the media conference was still going on and by then it was the Minister of Finance and Sport, Grant Robertson, who had taken over and he was fielding questions about whether people in casual and low-paid jobs might fear not turning up for work more than COVID-19 and if the cricket would still be on later in the week. And finally, he was asked if yo-yoing in and out of lockdown was the worst possible thing for our economy. No, the worst thing for the economy would be to have a massive outbreak of COVID-19 and we haven't had that and we won't have it again. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. And that was that on Saturday night. But that won't be the last time that he or his boss fields questions like that over the coming week of Auckland lockdown again at Level 3 and elsewhere at Level 2 for now. When RNZ National returned to its normal programming after Grant Robertson wrapped up the media conference, it was Saturday Night Requests, and host Shelley Venning pointed out one person had requested a pretty good tune for the circumstances.
George Thorogood and the Destroyers. Back to our Saturday Night Request show with one bourbon, one scotch and one beer. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. Hi, Lucinda. Hello. Now, what information did you want about the test that you didn't get? Well, enough information that I knew that the test, now we're talking about the COVID-19 test, Mm. that it was safe as per uh, recorded on the consent form, that the results would be accurate and the test was, was necessary. That was Australian woman Lucinda Balsh talking to Heather Duplessy Ellen on News Talk ZB's drive show last Tuesday evening, shortly after she'd been released after 28 days in MIQ in Wellington. And the reason that Lucinda Balsh got a double dose of isolation was her refusal to have a PCR swab test for COVID-19, making her something of an MIQ martyr after the media got wind of her story last weekend. Now, when she was asked, she told reporters, like she told Heather Duplessy Ellen there, she was only seeking assurances about the safety and efficacy of the swab test. And she told RNZ that she'd seen some research from Portugal that the test was 97% ineffective. Headlines like, show me the facts, says woman who refused COVID-19 test, made her stance seem almost rational, if a bit unreasonable. But that stat that Lucinda Bosch quoted from Portugal came from a court ruling after four Germans there had challenged their quarantine in Portugal last year. Now, reports of this have been circulated by people and groups who are campaigning against COVID-19 restrictions in several countries. And Heather Duplessy Allen's conclusion last Tuesday was this. It is simply because she is asking for information and not getting it that she is prepared to be a total pain in the butt. But those stories about Lucinda Balsh skated over, or in the case of RNZ's one, failed to mention Lucinda Balsh's own associations with organised resistance to anti-COVID restrictions here and in her native Australia. In one of several YouTube videos that she recorded from MIQ with notorious conspiracy peddler Karen Brewer, it was pretty clear that Lucinda Balch's request for more information about the test was actually an absurd ultimatum. You need to provide me all of these things. Um, Proof that the COVID um, virus has been identified, proof that mask wearing is um, safe and effective, proof that um, that nothing can be implanted when they do, in, in you when they do a, a COVID test, that it's 100% accurate, and, and actually state that all of the statistics, the COVID death st- statistics are accurate, all those sorts. It's a very comprehensive, very watertight document. It's, le- it's lawful and legally binding and non-negotiable. Now, Karen Brewer is an Australian conspiracy theorist who now lives in Northland, and she organises anti-lockdown demonstrations there, and she believes all journalists are Freemasons. And there was much, much more where that came from from her online. On Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, I talked to Karen Hay in The Lately Show about the red flags raised by Lucinda Bolsh and her story that many in the media missed, including RNZ, when reporting her story. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or the Media Watch podcast podcast feed if you missed it. Well, one who did pick up the red flags online this past week was filmmaker and writer Dylan Reeve, who told Media Watch's Hayden Donnell why it matters that the media check out people who take a stand on COVID-19 restrictions. That it was a bit unusual to hear the story in the first place, especially with a name attached to it. So that piqued my interest, and then I just uh, hit Google. I soon found she'd filed a 
uh, like a statement in relation to police action at an anti-COVID lockdown rally in Melbourne. She was obviously participating in the protest against COVID restrictions. Then I found a text of what was apparently a press release from her, which then led me to a, a YouTube channel. In one of her early videos, she describes herself as being someone who wouldn't take a test, wouldn't wear a mask, wouldn't quarantine. The host of the show she was talking on, you know, described the place she was as a quarantine camp for those COVID hoaxes. It's a bit tricky because you don't always see those things. I think if, if you're a working journalist and you're trying to get stories out quite quickly, you just sort of take people at their word a little bit. There's some tells with some of the stuff she says, right? I think she talks about common law a lot. Any mention of, of common law and you're, you're immediately going, well, you know, common law is, is this other law that people believe usurps the current law. So that's already a, a sort of an unusual starting point. And you also, when you're talking about people who are looking to court rulings about the efficacy of medical procedures, like courts aren't scientists. They're not always the best place to get your medical information. And typically those sorts of rulings are not what they seem this is the one about the 97% PCR test rate. Yeah, so uh, I mean, fundamentally thing. that court case is less about the efficacy of the tests and more about the way the law in Portugal was implemented for a similar kind of quarantine situation. We've done 1.6 million tests. If they were 97% ineffective, we'd either have something like 1.5 something million positive tests or a lot of negative tests and a lot of actual virus running around the country, like... It just doesn't make sense. But should journalists actually apply a bit more scepticism to some of these people, especially when they're coming to them with claims like that? I think so. I think there's a thing where a lot of people with kind of what you might call fringe beliefs are pretty media savvy, and they understand perhaps about, you know, how time-poor journalists are inclined to publish, I guess, controversial opinions. Right, because this is actually not... It's not not a story. A woman is taking a stand. She wants to stay in MIQ for 28 days. I mean, that's interesting on its own. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's an issue of, um, of credulousness. If you hear her describe the paperwork she put together, I mean, essentially, she's asking questions that can't be answered, at least if, if she gets to decide whether they have been answered. She's asking whether COVID can be proven to exist, whether masks are effective and safe, whether um, every aspect of the COVID statistics is correct. You know, you, no matter what results she gets, she can come back and say, I don't think this is accurate. Um, and what's really interesting in this case is it's, it's unusual that you get both sides of someone's position, right? You don't normally get to hear the, the careful position that they're, that they're spinning to traditional media while at the same time being able to go and directly see what she's telling people, you know, who believe the same things she does. Mm. We're going to be distributing the COVID-19 vaccine over the coming months. Obviously, that's going to be one of these wedge issues that conspiracy theorists try to exploit. What are the risks of giving coverage to people like Lucinda Bolch, even if it's neutral or even sceptical coverage? Arguably, some things don't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if you give coverage to someone who believes a JFK conspiracy theory. But... When we're talking about, you know, a health response to take certain actions for the, you know, health response of the whole country, these are planting seeds of doubt and they're providing arguably ammunition to people who would try to challenge that response. Um, so, you know, for example, Billy TK still has a lot of protests, still does a lot of protests, and most of them don't get covered by the media because, 
you know, it's pretty clear what he's up to. But on the other hand, you know, certain stories are in the zeitgeist and people are going to talk about them regardless, and it's probably best that the media take those stories carefully and actually provide context and, and detail. And it's hard to define exactly which story is which, mm. which person is which. There's been a number of people who've, you know, chosen for whatever reason not to take the tests that, they, that are required to be taken in order to be released at 14 days, and the media hasn't had to report their details because they haven't gone to the media to tell them. That was Dylan Reeve talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about media coverage of the MIQ martyr Lucinda Balsh, who hit the headlines this past week for refusing to take a COVID-19 test and ending up with an extended stay in MIQ, which she now says she'll challenge in court. Welcome to Ototahi Christchurch. We come to you live this morning from the Canterbury Earthquake National Memorial here on the banks of Otakaro, the Avon River. It is February 22nd, of course, and on this day, 10 years ago, exactly, this city and the lives of so many people in it changed forever. That terrible earthquake, 185 lives lost. That was John Campbell opening TVNZ's breakfast show before dawn last Monday at the memorial to those who died on that day 10 years earlier in Christchurch. It took years to agree on the memorial's design and even more to build it, making it something of a symbol to the recovery of the city that's still a work in progress. In the years after the quake, John Campbell himself dedicated many hours of airtime to the problems with housing, insurance and indecision in the city, at times turning the TV3 show that bore his own name into a venue for Christchurch people to vent, quite literally in the case of Campbell Live's Caravan of Complaint. Now he's at TBNZ, but last Monday John Campbell was still going into bat for people still in housing limbo in Christchurch. And that is still happening with IAG. We're going to call them and see how they're going with it and why it's taking so long. This is a kind of hell of repetition. It will be familiar to so many people in the city. And on Monday, John Campbell was also giving a voice to those still striving for a resolution to the CTV building disaster, such as Mayin Alkazi, whose wife, Maysoon, died there working as a doctor. Ten years of injustice. This is the message I would like to send. And while John Campbell's work as a journalist made a difference in Christchurch, Anne Bodkin told John Campbell in last Monday's special that she credited an Australian reporter with her survival in the PGC building 10 years earlier. It is a special place for the New South Wales rescue team and Simon Boda, the reporter who actually heard me when the generators were turned off because without them I don't think I would be here today. Now, many other journalists also went above and beyond the call of duty on the day of the quake and after the quake too. But when John Campbell handed back to the studio at TBNZ1 last Monday morning, his co-host Jenny May Clarkson told the viewers this. Good morning to you all. And we are focusing on Christchurch this morning. Our show will be predominantly based out of Christchurch. We make no apologies for that. We focus on a city that is... But why would they apologise for making a milestone anniversary out of such a major event? Well, possibly because some people elsewhere around the country may not have a great appetite for that anymore. And even some of those in Christchurch who lived through the quake themselves may have dreaded what John Campbell called 
the hell of repetition there when it comes to the sights, sounds and memories of it all over again in the media. So what approach to take then and what tone to adopt is a tricky one for the media and the individual journalists covering the anniversary. But this, of course, isn't a new problem. It comes up every year. The local paper, The Press, did things differently for the local audience the first time round, with a much more memorial focus for its anniversary edition. The editor back then was Andrew Holden, who's now the weekly media commentator on 9 to Noon. And last Tuesday, he said that many of the press's people from that day marked the anniversary last Monday at the empty site of their former headquarters in Cathedral Square. About 50 people from the press we just gathered uh, in front of where our building used to be that's now a car park, and we just spent um, our little time there just to catch up and remember so it was a um it was a good day in that respect as, as good as it can be when it's so tough while the press carried on after the quake in porter cabins at their printing plant near the airport canterbury's local tv station ctv became synonymous with the disaster because 115 people died in the building that bears its name including several of its own staff at the time it was assumed that the quake had also killed off the channel but it didn't. It was up again and running within weeks. And on the fifth anniversary of the Christchurch quake, CTV broadcast live from the site where their colleagues had died. Welcome back to our CTV News special, again coming to you live from the former CTV site here in Madras Street. I just want to address what's going on behind us. Uh, tribute is taking place at the moment. There's been speeches, there have been songs. However, in the five years since then, CTV changed hands, went online only, and eventually closed down as a live operation. Now, as we heard earlier, how and why its substandard HQ was built in the first place is still an open question, and that was the subject of a confronting podcast series called Collapse by the press's publisher Stuff, released to mark this anniversary. Later that afternoon, Edge found himself at the CTV site. He did not like what he saw. The organisation was uh, shit. Whoever yelled the loudest got the most response. I actually thought it was a bloody joke. RNZ also put out a six-part podcast for the anniversary called Fragments, which is based on first-hand accounts and interviews with people at the time of the quake and now, again, ten years later. Producer Katie Gossett, a journalist in Christchurch ten years ago, said this on Morning Report about the anniversary. People for years about the earthquake, and I know that some of them, I know of, you know, some people, one woman who was injured always spends it at home just with her family. Um, others want to come out and be part of a communal experience. Some people don't, you know, want to go anywhere near it. Uh, it's and, and actually, some people say they always feel a bit anxious and a bit nervous, but they know the day will pass and then, um, you know, then it's over. And, um, and I'm also thinking that I really need to go back and restock my water and, and my emergency supplies, all the things that have kind of lapsed a little bit. And the likelihood of it happening again was the focus of an editorial that was in the form of an open letter that the press published on the fifth anniversary of the quake. Back then, the paper urged other New Zealanders to stay interested in and engaged with the city's recovery, and it ended with a warning. This disaster will not be the last to hit this country. The chance of a quake in another part of the country is high. Every individual business and policy maker needs to be ready to cope with a disaster of this scale. And the press was right. Within a couple of years, the Kaikoura quake struck, and after that, Christchurch was tested by terrorism on March the 15th, 2019, something it never could have expected. In its special supplement last Monday, under the headline, 10 Years Telling Our Quake Stories, the current editor of the press, Kamala Heyman, wrote this. Despite our losses, 
battles with bureaucracy and the dusty, noisy disruption of rebuilding, we have much to celebrate. We have much to look forward to. But that said, she also registered citizens' intense disappointment at all the unresolved issues, such as the so-called anchor projects and the rebuild, which are still incomplete. And what has been rebuilt and what hasn't over the past decade was the focus of another multimedia production from the press, a series called Munted, released on the 10th anniversary of the first Canterbury quake back in October 2010. A memorial to those we lost was seen as a crucial element of the rebuild blueprint that was imposed by the government on the city in 2012. Yet somehow the city has ended up with three memorials. And this week, press reporter Philip Matthews added a special final episode of Munted for this week's anniversary to bring everything up to date. Jerry Brownlee, MP for Ireland for 24 years, also seemed like a permanent feature on the skyline. He dominated the national government's management of the earthquake recovery and rebuild and was a polarising figure. But if you thought you had a bad 2020, Brownlee had an even worse one. Now, the Munted series was billed as a personal perspective on the past 10 years, so given that opportunity, what did Philip Matthews think were the important issues to highlight? 10 years is an obvious one to mark, but I was surprised actually at the level of national coverage this time and the kind of reverence seemed to have much more of a sort of a seriousness about it than I'd seen in previous years. And it was quite, you know, respectful and um, shied away from the politics largely and covered, the, I guess, the tragedy. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised by it. Is that the essential conflict here, that there is still national interest in it, but of course, you know, uh, it's, it's at the local level where the feelings are more intense? It's interesting that because it's easy to feel both things, both of those feelings simultaneously, and I've, I have felt both of those points of view. Sometimes it seemed like journalists would fly in like it's a war zone and as though we're Beirut and they'd stand in front of the most bombed up building they could find or ruined building, uh, you know, then stay for two days, wear their flak jackets, take off again. On the other hand, it's important to bring those stories to national attention, and I remember what it was like when. Campbell Live was left as the only national media still covering Christchurch, and you'd see John standing in his in his waders in some flooded, silt-covered street in East Christchurch, and you'd sense that the rest of the country would be going, "Come on, get over it. We've had enough of this. Three mm. or four years on." Then again, you know, even people even people I know well who live in other cities would would come down here, or they would watch things on TV, and they would go, "I can't believe it was like this." I can't believe this happened. And I think, well, where have you been? You know. Well, one thing very specifically that a, a couple of Christchurch residents got in touch with us about was that they don't like, on the anniversary day, the kind of morselisation, if I can put it like that, of people's stories, like news clips of people who went through it 10 years ago remembering. Are you surprised that people would complain about that, or, or is that a typical or perhaps understandable reaction from people in Christchurch? No, I think it's a very typical response. I think there's a feeling people get where they find that re-traumatising or triggering. People I know well who still won't go into parts of the city. When when we made Munted, we showed very little of the the day of the earthquake for that reason. But then again, other, other people, I don't know if you've heard the stuff podcast Collapse mm-hmm. by Michael Wright and Mark Greenhill, which is a deep dive into the rescue and, and those stories. And it's pretty harrowing stuff and... You know, I know people who think, look, I, I'm not ready for that. It's been 10 years. I don't know when you would be ready if 10 years is too soon. But um, 
you know, that's an understandable reaction. I mean, you were given the opportunity to do a personal perspective on the 10 years since, uh, a great opportunity. So how did you decide what were the important things to focus on that you would have wanted people to know about the 10 years that's passed since, you know, the October 2010 and, and February 22nd quake? Where it all began really is Charlie Gates finding this around 200 hours of footage shot by press videographers over those 10 years. And he went through, you know, painstakingly. And we looked for interesting moments, but they're often also funny moments that we thought revealed revealed something about the personalities of the key players, but also could act as a kind of revenge for the people watching it. So the people who... <laughs> Look, Jerry Brownlee became the central figure of it, of course. So people I think he's in every movie. single episode. He's in every episode. Yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing about episode eight is uh, the last one that just came out is we are able to follow his, his journey uh, when he gets voted out of Islam, the really big anchor projects, the stadium, the Metro Sports Centre, the convention centre are still not completed and so people Brownlee will and with and he's right to do this will look at that will look at what Megan Woods and what Labour have been doing since 2017 and and saying well where's your progress and he's he, you know he's just he's justified in saying that my mind also go back goes back to uh, sitting in the one of the porter cabins that the press had to move to um, a year after the quake uh, working out by the printing plant uh, chatting to Martin van Bainen well, he kind of lamented that the press had become, in his words, you know, inevitably and appropriately, I suppose, a one-issue newspaper. Does it still feel a bit like that? Yeah, for those first few years, everything was the earthquake. Now I think other issues that have emerged from, say, the mosque shooting, you know, which is every bit as important, and there's a lot of other things. I think it is background noise, and I think what we were seeing and what we were doing was pretty hardcore and potentially pretty damaging at a kind of psychic level or an emotional level, and that becomes physical stress as well. So it was definitely um, pretty tough, and it burnt a lot of people out, and there's probably only a handful now of people left at the press from those times, I think, still at it. Martin be one of them, I'd be one of them, Charlie, a couple of others. And finally, Philip, um, will you do it again? Do you think it'll be another munted Year 20, something like that. Something like that. Maybe in another 10 years. Yeah, I think I, I joke about this and and um, Charlie sort of looks worried, but I kind of say, you know, maybe in 10 years when they've finished the cathedral, that they're supposed to have finished in 10 years, who knows, it may not even be video, maybe some other thing. We might beam it directly into people's heads or whatever we're doing in 10 years and uh, complete the story, we hope. Okay, so still munted after all these years, an AI munted. virtual experience. Or, or po- post-munted, we could call post-munted, it. Post-munted, yes. Yeah. Hopefully it won't be munted after all those <laughs> that's years. What we, we'll that's see. what we hope. That was Philip Matthews, senior journalist at the Press in Christchurch, and along with Charlie Gates, producer of Munted, an eight-part multimedia series on Christchurch 10 years after the quakes. You can find that online at stuff.co.nz, on the video-on-demand platform Play Stuff, and the episodes are all on YouTube as well. Stuff's podcast series on the CTV building called Collapse and RNZ series Fragments are also available now. You'll find those wherever you get your podcasts. And you can hear more from Philip Matthews and more about how the anniversary has been marked by the media in previous years in the extended online version of this story. It's on the RNZ website or the Media Watch podcast feed. Just look for the title, 10 Years After, Marking a Major Milestone in Christchurch.
Last week here on Media Watch, we looked at how Facebook all of a sudden walked away from news in Australia. In breaking news this morning, social media giant Facebook has followed through on its threat, restricting people in Australia from viewing news content. And it turned out this was the tech giant's unilateral response to the Australian government's news media bargaining code, which will oblige digital platforms to pay for the news they distribute and is due to become law shortly. Uh, Facebook says it's done this with a heavy heart uh, in response to the Australian government's proposed media bargaining laws. So those are passing through Parliament with widespread support. Uh, The government has been trying to find a way to make tech giants pay for Australian-generated news content that they use. However, five days later, after blowback from all around the world, news is back in Aussie's Facebook feeds again after the Aussie government talked it out with the tech titan. Hayden Donnell takes a look. Well, Facebook has refriended Australia and Australian news will be restored to the Facebook platform. And Facebook has committed to entering into good faith negotiations with Australian news media businesses. That was Australian Treasurer Josh Frydenberg in the mood for jokes after Facebook ended its ban on sharing news from his country. It decided to cancel that scorched earth policy on Tuesday after securing concessions from the Australian government, which essentially give it an out from the code if things turn sour. It will now be given 30 days notice before being forced into binding arbitrations on pay deals with media networks and can avoid being subject to arbitration entirely if it commits, quote, enough money to the Australian media industry. But how much is enough? According to Facebook's VP of Global News Partnerships, Campbell Brown, no one knows. The company also retains the power to press the nuclear button once more and withdraw news from Australia if it can't reach pay agreements it thinks are fair. In return for those concessions, Facebook is back to the negotiating table. It struck a pay deal with Seven West Media within hours of announcing news was returning to Australian feeds. That was enough to get Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison to put up a celebratory post on his own Facebook account. But not everyone's happy at the compromise. At Platformer, tech commentator Casey Newton pointed out that kicking news off Facebook actually possibly made the site better. Here's how he introduced his article noting the return of journalism. Just when the news feed was starting to feel fun again, the news is coming back to Facebook in Australia. The Washington Post editorial board pointed out potential issues with the news industry becoming reliant on pay deals with the companies that spent two decades gobbling up its ad revenue. It said compelling Facebook and Google to enter the sorts of pay deals they've struck with Australian media is a bit like relying on a lion to nurture the same gazelle it just gored. But the main thread of criticism from tech writers was that forcing companies to pay for linking to news was a threat to the principles of the open internet. The inventor of the internet, Tim Berners-Lee, said making companies pay for links could make the internet unworkable. Over at Tech Dirt, commentator Mike Masnick said forcing Facebook to pay for links could set off a cascade of negative effects, with other companies also wanting money in exchange for allowing their content to be linked to. There should never need to be any negotiation or any discussion about bargaining power over links, because links are fundamentally free. And yet, the end result of this deal is that it sounds like Facebook is effectively caving and agreeing to pay for links. Business Insider Australia editor James Hennessy had a slightly different take. His Substack article, headlined Zucked, didn't so much defend the legislation as challenge the underlying assumptions of its critics. He argued Australia isn't breaking the internet, if only because the internet is already horribly, seemingly irreparably broken. 
I asked him to explain. Obviously, it's great for uh, especially smaller media who haven't been part of the wheeling and dealing uh, of the past couple of weeks quite as much to be able to be back on Facebook and, and get their content out there. Depending on who you ask uh, and what sort of concessions have been made by the Australian government to put Facebook in a position where they feel comfortable reintroducing news into Australia, uh, maybe it's less of a good thing. One of the big criticisms of this legislation online is that making tech companies pay for links breaks the internet or breaks the principles of the open internet. I find this argument, which comes mostly from the United States, from a lot of the tech media, especially also coming from you know, institutional uh, people in the tech world over in the US, that basically, yes, as you say, uh, doing this would break the fundamental concept of the open internet where we treat every link equally. There's no payment behind any links. Everything, you know, everyone can get to exactly where they want to go on the internet without running into any barriers. Uh, and my sort of contention to that is, have they used the internet at all in the past 10 years? As anyone who has been using the internet for a very long time, like a matter of decades, would know it's a very different place to what it was back then. And Facebook and Google, the two players that we're uh, talking about here, have so radically changed the way the internet works and the way that we expect the internet to work that it's like, what are you talking about in this regard? Essentially, your argument is that it's kind of hard to break the internet because the internet is already incredibly broken. Yes. Think about how the average person uses the internet now, especially people who are maybe less savvy and less connected to the tech world. You know, they will go on, they'll look at their Facebook feed, they'll look at their Instagram feed. Maybe some of the ones who are a little bit savvy will look at their Twitter feed and sit on these sort of infinitely scrolling feeds. The whole time they're doing that, you know, they're obviously being served uh, content algorithmically and obviously served ads constantly, their data being tracked, this whole surveillance capitalism idea. Um, so it's kind of like, in what sense is that not just a massive defamation of the way that the founders of the internet expected it to work. I mean, you know, when people were talking about Australia shaking down the tech companies, and I was like, well, maybe it is. You know, every time in Australia there's a, um, a poll about, for example, taxing Facebook and Google and the other tech titans more, it's always really, really strongly in favour. So I think people do have a kind of emotional reaction to this stuff, whether it's specifically directed at Mark Zuckerberg and kicking him in the nuts, I, I don't know. But I get what I mean is that that untrammeled power of the tech companies is isn't and and the way that they've sort of extended their influence and destroyed yep. industries and sort of wrought havoc and had no checks and balances on them ever in their history basically from any government anywhere uh, is it good yeah. to have some kind of legislation in place even if it's imperfect? Uh, yeah, so that, I mean that's that's also fair as well. Um, that and I I, I feel like. We are at the beginning of a decade of more stringent regulation of big tech. The perfect utopian vision is that all these individual countries and polities and whatever are going to tax Facebook and Google, and then they're going to spend all that wonderful tax bounty on really nice things. Uh, and you know maybe that will happen in certain cases, but I feel like the regulation that's coming is going to look a lot like this kind of imperfect regulation. And that this is what tech regulation will probably look like for the next decade. We're always talking about the toxic relationship between news and Facebook and how actually it's inevitably going to end up with the news coming out worse off. Would it have been better if actually maybe they'd ripped off the Band-Aid and it'd just not and come back? Yeah, I see, what, I see what you mean. And look, there was kind of a brief... Obviously, every news organisation in Australia took a significant hit from that. 
some some more than others depending on their reliance on the on the platform uh, but obviously there was kind of a beautiful moment of the clouds parting and, and light coming down where <laughs> Australia sort of began to imagine well okay if it never comes back obviously the news consumers who uh, were previously sitting on Facebook and getting news from Facebook some of them may find something else to do with their time but presumably a lot of them will want to find news in in other other ways so there was kind of a sense of like oh maybe we can do something else find different ways of capturing those audiences um, and one of the you know critiques of the code that I find most compelling is that yes it is standing up to Facebook and Google but at the same time it's sort of like acceding to their terms it's like saying, okay, well, we surrender. You guys uh, do control the internet. You do define the terms of the internet. We just want kind of a, a healthy slice of that pie to reward sort of our contribution to the ecosystem you've created. Whereas um, which, maybe it would be know, better is... to just destroy the ecosystem. Exactly. Obviously, this fight is not really over yet. There is still the looming threat that Facebook could pull the news again. So we'll see what happens in that kind of in that kind of way. Um, but yeah, look, I. I I was certainly among the camp that thought, you know, if they don't bring news back, then great, let's try, just try something new. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was the editor of Business Insider Australia, J.R. Hennessy in Sydney, talking there to Hayden Donnell about Facebook's flip after its face-off with the Australian government over switching off news for users in Australia in response to a looming law change which would make the tech titan pay for the Australian-made news it distributes. Finally on Media Watch this week, a blurt in the House last Wednesday from MP Simon Bridges gave media an editorial conundrum when they reported that he'd stormed out of Parliament. Here's Heather Duplessy-Ellen telling ZB's Drive Show listeners what happened. And it ended in National MPs Paul Goldsmith and Simon Bridges storming out of the House, the latter calling the Speaker a twat. Well, that was certainly undignified and also clearly unparliamentary language for which the MP apologised the next day. But Heather Duplessy-Allen had no qualms about using the same word herself on News Talk ZB more than once. And News Talk ZB's news bulletins that night did it too in more than one way. He says he didn't hear fellow MP Simon Bridges call Trevor Mallard a twat, a twat, I should say. But should you say it at all was the question the media were asking themselves. RNZ decided the MP's insult was fit to publish and to broadcast and so did the New Zealand Herald and the Otago Daily Times and News Hub wasn't bothered about offending people who were watching their 6pm news either. Bridges stormed out of the House, reportedly calling Speaker Trevor Mallard a twat. Political reporter Jenna Lynch went on to tell viewers it could even mean a leadership spill was coming, though she didn't say exactly how the Nats twat spat could escalate into a top Nat scalp. Newsroom.co.nz published the insult too, and Hawke's Bay Today even put it in a headline the next day on page 34. But staff decided to be discreet, saying only that Mr Bridges had sworn at the Speaker and published the word as T and three asterisks, which was a bit weird because two years ago, staff reported that Simon Bridges himself had called himself a twat for liking tweets by Cameron Whale Oil Slater. 
And they were probably OK to do that. The word is not in the top 20 of the Broadcasting Standards Authority's list of most offensive words, known as what's not to swear, and complaints about Paul Henry saying it on the air five years ago were not upheld by the BSA either. In fact, they said at the time anyone tuning into his talk show could expect robust language. However, people watching live scoring of the T20 game on the Herald's website on Thursday might not have expected to hear this from the alternative cricket commentary crew live-streaming their chat over beers from a bar in Napier. Trying to get my numbers up so I can try and do some influencing, make some cash. If you do start, some products. If you start to become an influencer, Matt Heath, and start pushing products, I'm going to come over to your house and I'm going to kick you in the... <laughs> Is that a promise? Can you, I've had, can you do that? The alternative cricket commentary crew has been under fire recently for being a bit too boozy and too blokey. And clearly their bosses at NZME didn't think many women were actually listening in, let alone any men who might prefer their cricket commentary without violent sexual imagery. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.